The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Family Matters with your host, Dr. Virginia Collin. In this program, we will explore some of the challenges families face and the solutions they create in today's world, where marriage, parenting, and family forms are not what they once were. Now, here is Dr. Virginia Collin. Welcome to Family Matters. I'm your host, Virginia Collin. I'll be talking today with author Stephen Schwartley who uh, had an unexpected stroke and took a very creative approach to recovering from that stroke. So uh, we'll talk a little bit about what a stroke is and how you can tell if somebody had one. And we'll be talking much more about Steve's own experience. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thank you, Virginia. I guess I didn't tell my listeners very much about you. I could say that you had a very successful career as a salesman in the medical equipment industry. Um, You sold, what, reprographic, semiconductor, automotive, and software products? And won a national award, right? Yeah, I sold a little bit of everything once I got out of college and realized I wasn't going to get into med school. So uh, I started out selling medical equipment and then progressed to selling robots and then reprogramming equipment and automotive software and uh, equipment made in uh, Europe. Okay. Tell me about the national award. Uh, I won several national awards. Uh, the first one was with uh, a company that everybody used to be familiar with, but you don't hear it often, uh, is GAF Corporation. And uh, the first year that I worked for the company here in Phoenix, Arizona, I was a uh, salesman selling to uh, architect and engineering companies, uh, reprographic supplies and blueprint machines, you know, the old technology before computers and CAD took over. And uh, lo and behold, I had a really good mentor as a boss. His name was Roby Edwards. And... Uh, with his guidance and a helpful hand behind me, I uh, came in second place the, the first year. And then the uh, following year, I became national uh, awards winner for selling supplies. Wow. Well, well done. All right. So um, moving on, you never sold any drones, right? No, but I sure <laughs> see a lot of them on TV anymore. Yeah, I mentioned that uh, because your book uh, features drones uh, designed for a military purpose and used in a different way from what the designers intended, or at least by different people from what the designers intended. I don't think I said yet, the title of your book is Enemy in the Heartland, and some people have called this a real page turner, so we'll be getting to that. Um, let's, uh, start with your stroke. When did that happen? How long ago? It happened, uh, July 7th, uh, 2013. And it happened uh, a day or two after I was playing golf on 
And of course, down here in Phoenix, Arizona, when I was 112, and basically, I think I got dehydrated that afternoon because uh, the uh, uh, the lady that runs around with a golf cart uh, full of beverages disappeared that day because it was too hot. Ooh. So that's uh, something I did not expect. It sounds like one of the things that people should do to reduce their risk of getting a stroke is stay hydrated. Well, hydrated is one, but the, the best way to hopefully get rid of a stroke is uh, get it, you know, in contact with your family doctor and go over your family history because, you know, some families have uh, occurrences of strokes more often than other families, and blood pressure and diet and cholesterol and all these different things add up to, you know, you being a good candidate or a bad candidate for a stroke, so... One of the things I learned after having a stroke is there are good hospitals to go to and bad hospitals to go to, and that's another question you should ask your family physician. That is, uh, if you have a choice and you have a serious, you know, uh, medical condition all of a sudden springing up on you, which hospital should you go to? Because I guess there is a big world of difference nowadays. That's a good point too, and also something that I had not thought of. I did do a little research so that um, I could sound like I I knew what I was talking about, even though I'm not a doctor and you're not a doctor. So just for information purposes, a stroke occurs when a blood vessel in the brain is blocked or a blood vessel bursts. And under those circumstances, there's a a part of the brain that suddenly is not getting blood and is not getting oxygen and rapidly starts to die. So whatever part of the part of your body is controlled by that part of your brain suddenly doesn't work right. And brain damage actually can start within minutes, so it's important for people to know how to recognize the symptoms of a stroke and call 911 and get help quickly. Getting treatment within the first 2 or 3 hours can really make a huge difference about whether there's going to be a long-term disability as a result. Um, so your stroke, you said it happened in July, you were playing golf. What do you, what was your experience? Do you recall feeling faint or what well, happened? Well, when I was, when I, you know, after looking back, you know, looking backwards is always <clears throat> interesting you know, when something happens to you, but my wife and I talked about it and she remembered a conversation I had after I left the golf course that day and I mentioned that, you know, the last three holes that I played didn't seem like I was actually playing, you know, I was playing poorly. And so when I got home that night, you know, went to have a barbecue in the backyard and everything, which is part of the course down here in Phoenix. And then Saturday, I just felt really kind of tired. You know, I had a good night's sleep, but I was just tired. Well, then on Sunday, a couple of friends came over to watch NASCAR. I'm a NASCAR nut. And as we were watching the race late uh, Sunday afternoon, uh, I was sitting on the couch and going, man, why am I so tired? And I had one eye open, one eye shut. Probably about an hour after the race started, I had both eyes shut sitting on the couch just listening to the race and when the race was over, my friends took off, and my wife and I went out to the pool to, you know, jump in the pool and maybe have a barbecue. And about an hour later, she got hungry. So when I got out of the pool to dry off, I reached down for the towel to dry off. And when I stood up, I just went completely backwards and fell <clears throat> flat on my back on top, 
top of a couple recliners. So I'm going, that's not usual. So I went inside the house, and I went in front of a mirror, and I'm looking at the mirror because, you know, my vision felt funny, and I looked at the mirror, and remember the old actor, Marty Feldman, the guy with the funky eye that was on Young Frankenstein, played Hunchback? My (laughs) eye was, one of my eyes was stuck in the corner of its socket. And I'm going, oh, no, this isn't good. And then when I shut the eye and just left the uh, right one open, my vision was good. When I would shut the right eye and leave the funky eye open, it would straighten out. But since I had both eyes open, the left eye went into its socket, so I'm going, uh-oh, big troubles. And, you know, having a biology degree, I figured, you know, it could be a, probably a stroke, so... I got dressed and went out and got my wife out of the pool. And since we lived really close to the hospital, we just drove down there very, very quickly and, and went in. And uh, uh, she uh, had one of the attendants come out and get me in a wheelchair, and they wheeled me in. And, and uh, that was the beginning of my session in the hospital that I probably shouldn't have gone to that hospital. You, pr- you probably should have gone to a different hospital? Is that what you said? Yeah. Well, oh, it's funny because they, you know, when I went into this hospital that had been around for a number of years, and I'm not mentioning names, um, they did not have a neurology department. So I was talking to a neurologist by a, a teleconference back in Philadelphia, which the connection broke a couple different times. They ran a battery of tests, MRIs, MRAs, CAT scans, ultrasounds, and everything. And I was in the hospital overnight. And the next day, you know, the, uh, the physician that uh, worked on me in the ER came up and he says, hey, we can't find anything, but I know you had a stroke. I know you had a stroke. And the long story of it is, I've got you an appointment with one of the best neurologists in Phoenix, Dr. Wangrad, but uh, he's not going to see you until Wednesday morning, but i got to release you since I can't treat you. So he said this. If you have a problem after I release you, do not come back here. Go to another hospital. And then on Wednesday, I you know, ended up going to see this Dr. Winograd. And after uh, a brief conversation, I said, you know, did you get my hospital records? He said, no. And I said, well, I'll come back, you know. And uh, when you get your records, he said, no, I'll look at you now. And I said, well, why are you going to look at me now? You had a stroke. And I said, how do you know? He says, I'm a neurologist. And long story short, he told me that it's amazing how much better the uh, the uh, guys who read the uh, uh, X-rays and scans are after he tells them where to look. And because <laughs> I was in such good shape, I had so much oxygen in my sinuses, it blocked uh, in the vision of the scan where the stroke was. And I was a very, very lucky man because if I wasn't in as good a shape as I was, I probably would have been dead or, you know, severely uh, incapacitated. So so that was my story. Okay. So, wow. <laughs> that is quite a story. Um, so um, with the stroke, there's no loss of consciousness. There's just, in your case, there was a fall, and I think that that's not unusual. Um, yeah, from what I read, um, other common clues are a sudden numbness or weakness of the face or an arm or a leg or one side of the body but not the other side of the body, trouble speaking, confusion or trouble understanding, 
you mentioned vision problems, um, trouble walking, dizziness, loss of balance, or a sudden, unusual sort of severe headache with no known cause. And apparently, if any one of these things happens, you're supposed to call 911. But you and your wife had a better plan, just drive to the hospital. <laughs> yeah, we, we took off for the hospital because it was only a couple miles down there, and we figured by the time an ambulance got to us, yeah, you know, we we would already be at the hospital. So, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the thing was, it, you had all this, you know, high price, you know, testing equipment, the MRI machines, and all this other stuff, with good operators, very nice people in the emergency rooms and everything. They couldn't find the problem, and it took a specialist to find the problem. But unfortunately, he wasn't associated with the hospital, so. And after I met the specialist, uh, that afternoon he called my doctor, and a couple of days later I had an appointment with uh, my regular doctor. And so I was sitting at the, my doctor's office. Uh, the nurse comes in and goes, why would you go to that hospital? Well, you know, hospital. And then my doctor, you know, a couple of minutes later when he came in the examining room, he goes, why would you go to that hospital? I'm going, oh, hospital. And that's why I learned there is a difference. So if you've got a choice of hospitals around, ask your attending physician which one he would rather have you go to. That sounds like really good advice. And I don't know whether one hospital is generally better than another for almost everything or if it might actually depend whether you think you have a heart problem or you think you have a neurological problem. Well, you know, I have uh, some... uh, relatives uh, that are doctors and it was a question I never ever thought about asking mm-hmm. and uh, you know and uh, after talking to them after having my stroke they're going oh yeah there's a you know it's a huge difference it's like a it's- car dealership with one side of the street one or the other you know some you know take really good care of their customers and some don't so yeah it's a shame that your doctor didn't think to mention that to you before you had a stroke well, I never had a problem. You know, my blood pressure was, you know, in control. All my, you know, uh, you know, blood uh, tests were really good. And, you know, my cholesterol was good. Sugar was good. So the only indication that I could have been a candidate down the road was my mom did die at around 66 or so <clears throat> from a stroke. But I'm not mm-hmm. aware of any of my other relatives, you know, you know, uh, on either side of the family tree having a stroke. So, you know, I guess it was fake that day. Yeah. So in your case, what was the treatment that the neurologist prescribed? Uh, number one, he added a couple of prescriptions to my daily uh, regimen of taking uh, pills. And then he also said, hey, here's the deal. You know, how much do you drink? And I said, well, I'll drink two or three beers a day, you know, around the barbecue or at home or anything. And I've done that for years. And he says, no, 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 you know, you got to get rid of the beer, which broke my heart. But he says, you can have as much red wine as you want because your body metabolizes that. So it took me a while to get used to it, but now I'm a Cabernet fan. And... Uh, <laughs> One nice thing about wine, in the middle of the night at 2 o'clock in the morning, unlike beer, it doesn't go flat. You can still take a sip out of your glass if you got some in it beside the bedstand there. So, so <laughs> okay. it made me have a camper. Okay. Did you have complications? Uh, I did for a while. Uh, the first, oh, I'd say two weeks after the stroke, I was just so tired. 
I couldn't even hardly get up. I laid on the couch taking naps or laid in bed, you know, in the afternoon taking naps, and I never have taken naps before, you know, in my whole life. And I'm 64 now. But, uh, you know, I was very, very fatigued. It took me about a month before I could walk up to our second floor in our house. Um, then my speech pattern was a little messed up. I could see words, but I couldn't say them. Mm-hmm. And the speed of my voice or the rhythm of my, my voice was kind of goofed up a little bit. Plus, I think my voice, the, the tone of voice I've got uh, has changed a little bit. I sound a little more muffled nowadays. So hmm. so there's been a bunch of different things. And my balance is a little messed up a little bit. So that's kind of hurt my hurt my golf game. But, hey, I'm on the right side of the turf and I can still play. So I'm, I'm very thankful I'm still here. Okay. Did the doctor give you an explanation of what might have caused the fatigue or, you know, just voice changes or being off balance? He he was just saying that was part of the healing process, and everybody heals a little bit different from one another, you know. So, But he did say uh, one thing was now that you've had the stroke, he wanted me to walk whenever I could uh, and get into the regimen of walking, you know, one to two miles a day. So we've got three dogs now in this house, little ankle biters. And so it's 5.30 in the morning when I get up every day, I take the boys out for a, about a mile and a half walk, and then I take our little female Yorkie out named Pig. I take her around the block a couple times, and uh, then I'll do that at uh, around 8 o'clock before I put them to bed. So, so I do about two or three miles of walking, and that seems to help immensely. But okay. I still have a little bit of a balance problem a little bit. Okay. Um, wow. It is already almost time to take a break, and I have hardly said a word about your book, Enemy in the Heartland. Shame um, on you. Shame on you. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but we're going to get there. We're going to hear about drones and terrorists and people in the CIA and the FBI and so on. We'll be coming back. Stay with us. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Most adults are able to make good decisions about how their families can move forward. They do not need to rely on courts to make such decisions, especially in cases of divorce. Far too many people suffer unnecessary anguish because they do not know what family mediators can do. We help people discuss problems constructively, In a private, confidential setting, we help them stop fighting and stay out of court. To learn more about mediation and other family matters, visit ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Colin has one L and no S. Are you struggling with emotional, financial, and legal stress related to divorce? The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia by Virginia Collin and Rebecca Martin teaches how to handle these processes in any state with special attention to Virginia's laws. This book can help you take care of yourself, get free legal advice, develop a good co-parenting plan, keep expenses down, and arrange a do-it-yourself divorce. The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia is available from Amazon 
for just $4.99. No one can tell you how much money you'll have or when you'll see your children, right? Wrong. It happens every day in divorce court. Don't let it happen to you. When dealing with separation, divorce, co-parenting, or care of an elderly relative, there is a better way. Mediation. Save time, save money, and save your children. To learn more, visit the Academy of Professional Family Mediators at apfmnet.org. That's apfmnet.org. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radio show at collinfamilymediationgroup.com. Now, back to Family Matters. I'm talking with Stephen Schwartley, author of Enemy in the Heartland, which is a terror novel. I'm Virginia Collin, your host, and here we go. So, Stephen, what prompted you to write this book? What was your inspiration for this? Well, after the stroke, it was probably, oh, I probably took about four to six weeks of medical leave from uh, my job as a recovery period. And then once I started back up, uh, the company I was working for was a very small company, and they decided that uh, they were going to lay me off in November of um, 2013. So being age uh, 62 at the time, uh, there wasn't too many companies out looking for a older gentleman that I was with a medical condition, you know, having a stroke. So my wife, who is a uh, psychologist and a behavioral analyst, she said, you know, why don't you start writing those books that you've had in your head? You've always had good stories to tell people and everything, so why don't you sit down and, and start writing one? So that, that was the push that made me do it. So that was actually your wife's suggestion? Well, you know, if you listen to your wife, you shouldn't get in trouble. <laughs> um, okay, we're going to do marriage advice too today, apparently. <laughs> oh, I'm full of that, so. Okay. Did you have any prior experience with creative writing? No, I didn't. Uh, you know, except for writing sales reports and marketing plans. And, uh, you know, so it was uh, you know, the first time out, and uh uh, and I was lucky, but I think, you know, the reason why I was lucky was, number one, I chose a subject that everybody's familiar with, you know, terrorism. You know, I chose a, a device that uh, created the terror, drones, which everybody sees every day. So between those two and, and having the uh, devious mind that I, I have, uh, everything worked out pretty good. Well, <laughs> that's that's lucky. So was it actually... Part of your idea of what was going to help you recover from the stroke was that you would do this creative writing, or did it just yeah. happen that now you had time available so you could finally do it? A combination of both, you know, uh, in between looking for jobs online, you know, and getting frustrated, uh, you know, I'd sit down, oh, probably a couple hours looking for jobs early in the morning around 7, 9 o'clock, and then I'd spend the rest of the day starting to write the book, and then pretty soon... 
I wouldn't say I got consumed by the book, but the book started to be a lot of fun to write. And so I kept an outline of the book, you know, trying to put characters in the right chapters and keeping the sequence right. And uh, one afternoon, uh, I found out that the book that I was writing was going to be really good because all of a sudden one of the characters got killed in the book towards the end, and I had a little terror because I base my characters off of people I know. You know, I, it's easy to write about some of these characteristics if you got a model in your head. Mm-hmm. So I killed off one of my friends in the book, and my wife comes in, and she goes, what's wrong? I said, I just killed off one of my friends in the book. She says, well, don't kill everybody out because you need a sequel. <laughs> so once again, I got to get my... Once again, I got to give my wife, who's one of the smartest people I know, you know, some more kudos because you know I just got done finishing writing the sequel to Enemy in the Heartland, and, and right now, as we speak, it's just about done being edited. So that should be out in October. Oh, okay. Good to know. Probably this is a good place for me to mention that listeners can find you and find your books online at stephenshortleyauthor.com. And who's going to spell Stephen Shortly, you or I? Yeah, <laughs> uh, Stephen spelled with a P-H, so it's Stephen and then Shortly, S-C-H-W-E-R, T is in Tom, L-E-Y. So it's stephenshortleyauthor.com. And on, uh, on my website, you can buy the uh, printed book or an autographed copy of the book. And then on Amazon.com, um, just look for Stephen Swartley or Emmy in the Heartland, and up will pop the book, and you can uh, buy that electronically or printed there. And if you're an, excuse me, an Amazon Prime member, you can download the book for free. Wow. You shouldn't tell people that. Now they won't buy it. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, you know, there aren't that many for now Amazon Prime <laughs> members, but the numbers are going okay. up. But but it's kind of interesting because there's a lot of Prime members out there that, that are looking at the book, and I do get kind of like a rental fee or a fee every time somebody downloads it. Uh, the key is they have to read the book halfway through, so I get... Uh, income generated either where they buy it or they become a prime member. So oh, either see. way, either way, Amazon nowadays sells about eighty five percent of all the books in the world. Amazing. Oh my gosh, that's a lot. Yeah, that's where my book is for sale. Also, <laughs> mine is yeah. not a terror novel. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, terrorism is such an interesting subject. You know that you know I'm always looking for more and more people to write reviews for me once they've uh, completed reading the book. And, but the biggest surprise that I've had lately is the number of reviews that are written, I'd say about 60 to 70% of the reviews are written by women. And I never in my wildest dreams ever thought that they would you know, be interested in that type of book. I would not have guessed that either. I would have, no, I would they, have guessed they, that the audience would be disproportionately male. Oh, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking, you know, military, you know, ex-government, you know, FBI, CIA, or whoever they may be. But, you know, the women have really gravitated to the book, and I think because, you know, they're always worried about you know, protecting their family members. And the, and the storyline for the book, just to give a kind of a inside look at the book, is, you know, if you were a terrorist, let me ask you this question. If you were a terrorist, would you rather go after a target that's well-defended or one that's easily attacked? Um, I think I would go for the one that's easily attacked. 
good answer because the book is based on a terrorist attack in the central United States when nobody expected. So, and being from Iowa, <laughs> I'm familiar with the Midwest, so, you know, most people are worried about if their sweet corn is ready to eat or if their kids are there on time for their little league baseball games in the summertime. They're not expecting a, an attack by a bunch of drones. Good point. Yeah, I was worried a bit about the Sears Tower in, what, Chicago after 9-11, yep. but uh, I didn't think very much about the St. Louis area. Yeah, well, you know, nowadays, you know, I, I get, I've got myself set up on these Google alerts talking about terrorism or drones and everything, and it's kind of interesting reading because these drones, uh, you know, whether, you know, the kids are playing with them or, or dad sitting there with a six-pack is playing with them, these drones are popping up all over the place, and I think drones have a very useful function. But uh, like everything else, you know, a car doesn't kill people; it's the driver that kills people. And uh, you know, someday, some of these kids are going to, you know, do something bad with the drones because you can go on YouTube right now and watch people, you know, putting guns on drones and blowing up targets. It happens every day, so. Oh my just gosh! In, just go go to YouTube and write drone and, and guns and see what pops up. And there's some pretty interesting videos there you can watch for free. Oh, that does not sound good at all. Um, well, you know what's even worse is you know because of my wife saying don't kill all off you know, all the bad guys off <laughs> the sequel which is going to be called Revenge Unleashed is even scarier than the first book uh oh <laughs> um, one of the things that you said earlier that interested me is that you had actually had this storyline kind of in the back of your mind for many years um, where did it come from when did it start well Back in the early 80s, I had, you know, a couple of thoughts about writing some sci-fi books, but I just never had the time. And then towards the mid-80s, I uh, got a private pilot's license. And I have a bunch of relatives and or friends in the military, and so be, between the pilot stocks and, you know, what's going on in the military, you know, drones, you know, for the last 15 or 20 years have become more and more prevalent in society, you, you know, whether they're used for military purposes or, you know, recreational purposes or, what you know, whatever it may be. And so, you know, when I started thinking about writing that book about drones and everything, there was something, I can't remember what it was now, but there was something on the news that happened one day with a bunch of drones. And I'm going, hmm, you know, this is like free advertising, so I'm going to start writing about drones and uh, try to scare the bejesus out of everybody. <laughs> okay. Um, how did you come up with the characters? The characters, you know... Um, they were pretty easy to come up with. What I did, and, you know, it's the only way I can write, is I would think of people that I've dealt with over the years, you know, uh, relatives, uh, bosses, customers, because I've been in, you know, sales for all my life. So you run into a variety of people. Plus, when I was in college, I was a bartender. <laughs> and you really run into a bunch of kooks there. So I would just visualize, for example, uh, one of the main characters in the book was a character by the name of Dick Edwards. 
And I kind of modeled him after one of my bosses that I worked for for a number of years. His name was Roby Edwards. So, you know, and after I got done writing a book and he read it, he's going, that was me in that book. I said, right on. You get what you pay for. (laughs) (laughs) So much for the uh, allegation that these characters are entirely fictitious. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, he said, why'd you have to kill me off? I said, well, I wanted to do that a long time ago. So, oh, you know, no, but, you, just, you just gave a spoiler. you got to stop that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> well, there's plenty more going on besides him, but uh, yeah. they'll forget about it until they read the yeah, book. But that's true. what I tried to do is write the book so that it was like a whirlwind, because I, the other thing I based the book on was, you ever hear that old wise tale, Six Degrees of Separation, Somebody Knows Somebody Somewhere? And that's right. how the book begins because it, you know I've tied in the Middle East, I've tied in the Europeans, I've tied in you know the military, the Mossad, and I, I started out with a list of characters and slowly I stir the pot and it's kind of like a somebody was telling me the other day it kind of was like a the 24-hour TV series. You know, something mm-hmm. was always going on, and you can't, are we going to catch him or get him, or, you know, are we going to get whacked or what? So I leave enough out there where, you know, people are still calling me. I'm going, where'd you come up with that idea? You know, so. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of characters and kind of a lot of subplots or, you know, steps within a chain of events that was gradually happening. Yeah, mini plots. Yeah. Yeah, I had a lot of mini plots in there because, you know, in real life, sometimes you really don't know where the other person's coming from when there's mm-hmm. a confrontation. And so to make the book more realistic and to kind of like make it into a future movie, I had all these little mini plots, you know, where these people are coming in, you know, uh, to the book, you know, what their background was and how they got connected and, and why they were whacked or why they were saved or, you know, who was good and who was bad. So, you know, you got to have a little mystery in those books to get the people going. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you do have drones. You do have people who work for the CIA, people who work for the FBI, people in police departments, and, of course, some terrorists, some of whom are very well-educated. What kinds of research did you do to be ready to write this book? Well, the research kind of came along with the book as I wrote it, but my prior background being in sales was I worked for two companies over in Europe. One was in Italy and one was over in Germany. So I did get to travel overseas. So when I did the overseas uh, sections of the book, I was familiar with the areas. But, you know, I don't know how I would have wrote the book if I didn't have two two really good tools. One was Google and one was Google Earth because I knew where I wanted to have a, you know, a battle scene or a terrorist scene or somebody to get shot. And I would just type in an address or a location and zoom in from Google Earth. And if I wanted to happen, have it happen in a restaurant, I'd just uh, go to that town and type in five-star restaurants. And up Google would pop all these restaurants. And I might change the name of the restaurant, but the restaurants would usually have pictures of their interior and you know a list of their cuisine and everything. So it was pretty easy to just kind of picture things in my head and just describe them. You know, write them down, and that's how I did the book. Uh huh. Um, do you yourself have any experience in the military or working for any spy agencies, government or agencies? 
No, but one of my wife's best friends uh, is a lieutenant colonel in the Army over in Europe right now. He did three tours in Afghanistan, and uh, he didn't know I was writing the book, and I was unaware of his existence until one day my wife was talking to this guy, and he goes, gee, I'm bored over here in Afghanistan. Can I read the book? And it was one of the best things I ever did because I got to to have his view of the book from a military sense, and uh, he offered one or two suggestions, like some of the people in the book, I needed to elevate their rank so that they could do actually what I said they could do. And, but he wrote back after he read the book, and he asked me those questions, hey, have you ever worked uh, for the FBI or CIA or ever been in the military? And I wrote back, no, he says, you might get a phone call one day. But he did ask one question, you know, were you a pilot or anything? And I was a pilot. So, so like I said, you know, between flying and having a devious uh, mind, you know, full of plots and, and uh, subplots, uh, the book turned out pretty good. So far, all the reviews on the book uh, have been five-star. Wow. That's impressive. Yeah. The one thing I ask people to do every day, right now, my tender age of 64 being young in my career reviews are like gold so you know i would really hope that you know your listeners once they read the book if they would write a review you know i would i'll thank them from the bottom of my heart okay Uh, all right then i guess everybody knows if you read the book it would be good to write a review unless of course it's not going to be a five star what'd you say I said, I'll be waiting for your review. <laughs> you may get that in more detail than you want. <laughs> ah. Um, okay. Was there one character in particular that you identified with? There were several characters. Uh, you know, one was a young kid from the CIA, an older gentleman from the CIA, uh, a couple people in the military. Um uh, you know, because it became like a brotherhood. Uh, the book did uh, all the good guys. The, the bad guys, they were the hood. Uh, they they were all college students that went to a college uh, based in England. And 13 years later, after they graduated, they uh, came and uh, did their terrorist attack in the United States. But remember back in the early 70s when the Olympics were in Germany where the terrorists killed a bunch of athletes? Right. I had forgotten about that, but that, that, uh, boy, that was awful. Oh, it was on TV all the time, and it made a real yeah. impression with me. Yeah. And so one of, the, one of the key factors for the book was, uh, was I, I made it clear in the beginning of the book that you know, future wars will probably not be fought by countries against each other, but they'll be fought between countries versus terrorist groups what you're seeing in the Middle East right now, you know, people going after ISIS or, you know, you name that the different groups over there, you know, the governments are going after them. So, so I, I based the book on a, a secret organization called the Olympia committee. And it was based on the, the attack back in the seventies. So all these European countries and the United States and, and some other countries, they all joined this to share intelligence Mm-hmm. And that's where the book starts beginning because somebody hears something over here in the Middle East and all of a sudden there's an explosion in New York City and 
well, all of a sudden somebody goes, hey, I think these might be related. And as people investigate the different events that happened in the middle of the book, they realize that, you know, bad guys are coming to the United States. The question is, you know, how they're going to do it and where they're going to do it and how many people are going to get killed. Do you have any idea in real life whether that level of cooperation and information sharing among countries really exists? Is there a high enough trust level for that? Well, you know, there's one that's been around for years and everybody's heard about it on TV and and movies. And, you know, Interpol, you know, the the police kind of like Mm -hmm. community. So I would imagine that the British uh, intelligence, you know, MI6 does talk to the CIA and the Mossad talks to the CIA and and the Germans. I mean, I do believe there is some cooperation between Mm -hmm. these different communities because it behooves them. I mean, look, there's NATO and the UN. So I do believe there are probably more than one or two entities out there. So I just took it on myself to make sure that everybody got to know this one called the Olympia Committee because you're going to start seeing it in that series of books. All right. Thanks, Steve. We're going to go to break now. We'll be back in a minute. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com No one can tell you how much money you'll have or when you'll see your children, right? Wrong. It happens every day in divorce court. Don't let it happen to you. When dealing with separation, divorce, co-parenting, or care of an elderly relative, there is a better way. Mediation. Save time, save money, and save your children. To learn more, visit the Academy of Professional Family Mediators at apfmnet.org. That's apfmnet.org. Most adults are able to make good decisions about how their families can move forward. They do not need to rely on courts to make such decisions, especially in cases of divorce. Far too many people suffer unnecessary anguish because they do not know what family mediators can do. We help people discuss problems constructively in a private, confidential setting. We help them stop fighting and stay out of court. To learn more about mediation and other family matters, visit ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Colin has one L and no S. Are you struggling with emotional, financial, and legal stress related to divorce? The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia by Virginia Collin and Rebecca Martin teaches how to handle these processes in any state with special attention to Virginia's laws. This book can help you take care of yourself, get free legal advice, develop a good co-parenting plan, keep expenses down, and arrange a do-it-yourself divorce. The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia is available from Amazon for just $4.99. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, Please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. 
You may also send an email to radio show at com. Now, back to Family Matters. I'm Virginia Collin, talking today with author Stephen Schwartley, who has written Enemy in the Heartland, a novel about terrorism at the heart of the United States. Steve, what was the hardest part of writing this book? The hardest part was actually to sit down day to day and write the book. Um, so I treated the uh, writing the book as a uh, as a job and also as therapy for me to recover from my stroke because I could tell every day as I wrote, I could see things a little bit more clear in my mind. And to me, it was the best therapy I could ever suggest to anybody if they could, you know, sit down and write something, you know, besides doing the exercise to rehabilitate your physical body, but the mental, you've got to do something. So for me, I was lucky enough to, uh, you know, right off the bat, find out that writing was the cure for me. That's a great idea. I bet that that would be true for a lot of people. I mean, some people might write memoirs and other people might write short stories or novels, but that would work for a lot of people probably. Yeah, because, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, something long. It can be very short, like a letter to a friend. But uh, Mm -hmm. I just got into, you know, uh, writing the book. And the more I wrote wrote, uh, into Enemy in the Heartland, the more fun it became. And after a while, I was going, what else can I do to scare people? You know, and so mm-hmm. it got to be a game after a while. So, so uh, like I said at the beginning of the interview, you know, when I knocked off one of the good guys and my wife came in, you know, it was at that moment when she said, don't kill off everybody. You know, it, it just kind of clicked. So writing has become my career now by hook mm-hmm. or crook. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder, too, for other people, maybe um, a different kind of creativity would be therapeutic, you know, maybe painting. Oh yeah, I you know painting or you know even sitting down playing you know cards with people or, or doing chats you know with computers you know something that you know includes you know some type of conversation mm-hmm. and uh, the the book ring for me worked out really you know really good because it really made the time go fast every day uh, even though it was hard sometimes to sit down because I'm an outside person. And some mm-hmm. afternoons, my wife would come in and say, hey, you're going crazy. Go outside, get some sunlight. So, you know, she told me to go out and play golf, which is, to me, really nice. So, yeah. Yeah, so it, it worked out pretty good. And, uh, you know, now my mission is just to go out and uh, connect with as many uh, uh, talk show hosts such as you, who, you know, are professional, you know, to help spread the word on my book because being an independent author is the hardest way to go. I don't know a big publicist or, or an agent for a publicist or a movie producer, but one day it will come, you know, if you have the face. But so, you know, basically I just started to be in business for myself again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, so this book has... Spies, it has drones, it has explosives, it has very sneaky people, uh, it has very vengeful, hurt, angry people. Um, it's, it's intended to be pretty scary. 
Do you think that something like the events in this book could really happen? Yeah, I mean, you know, put it this way. One of the things that really convinced me that that I was on track was after I wrote the book, uh, I finished the book last summer, you know, in 2014. Well, one of my cousins uh, who passed away yesterday, he was you know, battling cancer last year. And so I went back to the Midwest, back to Iowa. And being farm kids together, you know, we hung out and, you know, we went out to tractor poles and stuff. And we went to a county fair one Friday night and they were having a tractor pole. And lo and behold, looking above the the track where the tractors were pulling these big weights was a drone. Some guy in the stands had a little drone, and they were videotaping the event. Now, this is a little town of about 6,000 people in the middle of nowhere, and here's a drone at twilight. And I'm just going, wow, that's cool. You know, it's really happening. So, And then the day I finished writing the book, uh, right across the streets of cul-de-sac, and a guy that's a little bit younger than I am, he was out there that afternoon after I got done writing, and he had just bought a drone. Of course, he was zooming up and down the, the streets with his drone, looking at people's backyards with his little video camera, seeing if anybody was at the pool. <laughs> wow, I, uh, I must live a very sheltered life. I didn't realize that drones were permeating our world <laughs> that way. Well, he lost his drone because he went on vacation or in Hawaii, and I didn't know he could take a drone on an airplane, but he put it in a suitcase, and he lost his drone videotaping a waterfall. So he had to buy a new one, but, you know, uh, you go around the neighborhoods around here in the Phoenix area, and probably because we have such good weather and things are flat, uh, there isn't a week that doesn't go by that I don't see a drone some kid or some guy has out there playing, you know, out in the park or whatever. Yeah. Well, it does make sense to me. I mean, people loved playing with remote control cars and remote control airplanes, <laughs> even when they were just objects moving around in space. They didn't have video cameras on them. <laughs> well, you know, think about it. Drones are never going to go away. I don't believe Amazon is going to have luck delivering packages with drones because, you know, if a gust of wind comes up and a drone's propeller chops off a kid's finger, you know, uh, that family's going to end up owning part of Amazon. But, you know, if, when you think about fire departments and high-rise buildings, you know, if they can't get up in the building, they can use the drone to go up and, and zoom in with their cameras and see if there's any survivors or people trapped. Or out here, you know, for rescue, you know, people get lost on hikes or going up mountains. You know, drones can help. Instead of sending up, you know, a real expensive helicopter, 800 or or $1,000 an hour to operate, you know, they can use these drones. So, I mean, there are some useful purposes. But like I said earlier, you know, there's only takes one or two bad guys to make something really bad. Mm-hmm. And as you say, that is true of a wide variety of things. You know, an airplane can be used to transport people or an airplane can be used to slam into the side of a building. And mostly we use them for transporting. (laughs) How do you want, what do you want your readers to be thinking about, or how do you want them to be feeling when they finish reading Enemy in the Heartland? Uh, When they get done reading Enemy in the Heartland, I hope they want more. 
And uh-huh. um, from what I've been told off the reviews and some family members or, you know, business acquaintances that have read the book, first thing out of their mouths are, when's the next one coming out? Which should be this October. And it's going to be called Revenge Unleashed. But I just want people to sit down and, and just think about, you know, day-to-day life, you know, how factual this book can be. I mean, how easy you can see this in your mind happening. And, you know, people profit off of war and terrorism. Uh, you know, uh, munition factories, you know, the, the more terror there is, the more guns and bullets they sell, you know, things like that. So mm-hmm. everything that's in the book is plausible. And I made it very simple for people to see the plots stirring. They just have to realize that, you know, most plots can go undetected. And that's mm-hmm. what I wanted them to understand is, hey, you got to be visual nowadays. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you did a pretty good job con- convincing me of that, that this sort of stuff could happen. Maybe not exactly the events that you envisioned and created in your novel, but similar things could happen under the radar. One of the things, you know, you asked about research, and one of the things I'll suggest to your listeners and to you is, you know, go do a Google alert and and set the alert for drones. So whenever there's an article about drones, good or bad, it will it will pop up. And since I've done that for the last year, year and a half, you'd be amazed at how many drone attacks you never hear of that happen over in the Middle East or around the world. I mean, this is kind of like... You know, kind of like that movie Terminator, you know, Skynet, you know, the machines are coming. You know, the drones are kind of like that first generation of of machines that can be friendly or can be evil. Yeah. I actually attend a Quaker meeting, and our meeting house is right up the road from CIA headquarters in Langley. So we've had people who think drones are... Armed drones, not drones in general, but drones with weapons are very dangerous and a very big mistake. Um, we've had them visiting us at the meeting house. And one of the, one, there are a couple of problems, kinds of problems they mention. One is that it, it's so hard to be sure whether you've identified the right target. And another is, um, it's, it's actually, traumatic for some of the people who are managing the they're steering these drones long distance but they see the damage that results including the collateral damage and they're coming away with post-traumatic stress symptoms well now you've opened up the can of worms that's inside the book <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't have you do that better if I asked. But you know, one of the, one of the things in the uh, in doing my research is the United States isn't the largest seller of drones to the world. You know who is? I don't know. Israel. And there are a bunch of com- countries that would surprise you on the list of drone sellers around the world. But uh, this is not going to go away. Okay, now uh, this is a new line of research. How did you find out this information? Is this, again, just internet searches? Yep, yep. You know, it's just one of those things where, you know, you start thinking of goofy thoughts and you start doing research, and that's why, you know, some of these other kids, 
that you see nowadays. What's what's the latest on the news that you're starting to hear besides drones? And it's something that's just really come up this last year because it's going to be the title of the third book. Any I don't idea? have a guess. Homegrown. You ever hear of that term on TV the last couple months? Home Homegrown terrorist. Homegrown terrorist. Yeah, yeah, I have yeah. heard that. Yeah, well, the title of the third book that's uh, just uh, hitting uh, my uh, computer is called Homegrown, The Unexpected Terror. All right. I want to mention again that people can find your first book, Enemy in the Heartland, and in the future we'll be able to find the sequel at your website, stephenschwartleyauthor.com. We have... um, about a minute left. Is are there any closing comments or that you'd like to make, or anything you'd like to repeat for emphasis? Well, one of the things is I'd like to say thank you for having me on your show. You've been very kind. Uh, the other thing is, you know, please go out and buy the book. Uh, it will entertain you. Uh, most people have told me after they got past the first four chapters, uh, that, you know, I started uh, marital stress because they wouldn't put the book down. So, and then if anybody knows a good movie producer, you know, I've been told that this book wouldn't make a great movie. So, I'm looking for any help that I can find. So, I found out a long time ago, the more people that work on a project, the better success you have. So, buy the book and help me out. All right. Thanks very much, Steve Schwartley. Thank you, Virginia. Thank you for joining us this week on Family Matters. Please tune in for another edition featuring host Dr. Virginia Collin next Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Be kind, heal, and grow.